Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. We continue our presidential series with, with the nation's 27th president, William Howard Taft. Taft was another trust-busting president, and we needed to break this into two parts. The first part, we'll get into how he came to be president and his journey. And part two, we'll get into some of his more prominent foreign and domestic policies. I always like to mention our sponsors. We have EliteBookEdits.com, writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. If you have any book editing needs, please visit our friends over at EliteBookEdits.com. And then, of course, I like to plug my own work, my two um, fiction books, Immortals Revelations, about two vampires who want to reveal themselves to the world. They don't like that term. They start filming this documentary, and then things start to go bad. That is Immortals Revelations, and then The Naughty List, which is a fun little Christmas-themed romantic comedy where two people have been independently working with Santa their whole lives, and then Santa sets them on a path to kind of meet each other, and all kinds of romantics and hijinks ensue. Moving on to our podcast on William Howard Taft, time to bring in our resident history buff, Jean Ann Zanakis. Jean Ann, take it away. All right. So on today's podcast episode, we're going to be talking about the life and the presidency of William Howard Taft. I always find it interesting how little people know about William Howard Taft. And if you think about what occurred politically before and after his presidency, you can wrap your head around why he isn't as well known. You know, he follows Teddy Roosevelt, who is this larger than life figure. And after his presidency ends, World War One breaks out shortly after. When they do say something about him, they always seem to mention, oh, wait. Wasn't he the president that got stuck in a bathtub? Firstly, that's what you remember about someone. And secondly, and maybe more importantly, that is considered a myth by historians. That didn't actually happen. What I do wish people would say about him is, ah, yes, the only president who was also appointed to the Supreme Court after his term as president ended. This is a man who, in his lifetime, controlled two different branches of the federal government, the executive branch as president and the judicial branch as chief justice of the Supreme Court. So let's get into how these two things came to be. William Howard Taft was born in 1857 in Cincinnati, Ohio. His father was, you know, well-educated. He went to Yale. He was a lawyer. He held a number of different political appointments, including being Secretary of War for President Grant. Much was expected of Taft from his father. From an early age, he studied the Constitution with his dad, and his dream of being on the Supreme Court came from his father. He felt it was a very prestigious position. He, too, went to study at Yale. He graduated second in his class, and he became a lawyer. It was a lifelong dream of his to become a member of the United States Supreme Court. That was a dream that would become a reality, but he would do other things first. His stint as a lawyer was pretty short. He was appointed a judge while still in his 20s. 
He was then made solicitor general for the Justice Department. The solicitor general represents the federal government in U.S. Supreme Court cases and decides what the legal position is going to be for the United States government in cases. So the seat of the solicitor general is often referred to as the 10th justice. So he doesn't get the position he wants yet, but he gets closer. He was then appointed a judgeship on the federal circuit. So, you know, William Howard Taft was pushed to attain greatness by his parents, and he met and married a woman who had ambitions and didn't want to settle for being the wife of a judge, but that of a politician. Like the saying goes, behind every great man is a great woman, make way for Helen Heron Taft. But she was known more commonly as Nellie. She came from a very politically connected family, even visiting the White House during President Hayes's term in office. And as the story goes, it's believed she said that she wanted to live there someday. They were married in 1886. And when William Howard Taft was appointed governor general of the Philippines after the Spanish-American War ended, and he moved with his young family to Manila. He accepted the position with the understanding that if a vacancy opened up on the Supreme Court during McKinley's term, that he would appoint him. But McKinley died just four months into his second term. A position on the Supreme Court is offered to him while he was governor of the Philippines, but he was so popular there that he turns it down. Later on, President Theodore Roosevelt appointed him to be his secretary of war. Roosevelt was highly impressed with Taft, even once quoted as saying before leaving for vacation, all will be well in Washington because I have left Taft sitting on the lid. Both described their relationship as being that of close friends. Taft was a great compliment to Roosevelt's personality, where Roosevelt was always doing something or saying something. Taft was methodical and he was always carefully considering, you know, both sides of the coin whenever he had to make decisions. When it came time for Roosevelt to step down, Taft was his handpicked successor. But the honeymoon wouldn't last forever, and the two would eventually go head to head four years later in the election of 1912. But we'll get into that a little bit later. The election of 1908 was a relatively easy one for Taft, although he hated, you know, every minute of campaigning. He was not a politician with the sitting president's support. Taft easily won the Republican Party's nomination for president. The honeymoon wouldn't last forever, and the two would eventually go head to head four years later in the election of 1912. But we will get more into that later. The election of 1908 was a relatively easy one for Taft, although he hated every minute of campaigning. With the sitting president's support, Taft easily won the Republican Party's nomination for president. Taft pledged to continue the progressive policies of Roosevelt, and he overwhelmingly defeated Democratic candidate William Jennings Bryan, 
who had lost his third and final attempt at the presidency. In fact, Republicans used the slogan, vote for Taft now. You can vote for Brian anytime. I mean, that's a pretty big burn. Even though William Jennings Bryan earned more votes than he did in his first two presidential elections, it wasn't enough to put him over the tap. Taft won more than 50% of the popular vote and over 66% of the electoral college vote. And you can see more specific results at 270towin.com. For Taft's inauguration, this is a great story. You know, you hear the common saying, baptism by fire. Well, William Howard Taft had a baptism by blizzard. One of the worst blizzards to hit Washington, D.C. in its history occurred just before his inauguration. They had 10 inches of snow, high winds. It took thousands of men to remove the snow so that even just a portion of the presidential parade could take place. And because of the severe weather, Taft took the oath of office inside the Senate chamber. The Library of Congress has some great images and primary source documents on this. Taft was sworn into office using a Bible owned by the Supreme Court. He would use the same one when he was sworn in as chief justice. His inaugural address was about 5,000 words. And if you read it in its entirety, you can see his judicial mind at work. In fact, he is considered one of our most judicial presidents. He always considered the Constitution. And in many of the explanations for his vetoes, he pointed back to the Constitution. In it, you know, he swore to uphold the reforms put in place by his predecessor. He wanted to ease some of the restrictions placed on railroad companies to reorganize some federal agencies, you know, departments of justice and labor and commerce, just to name a few. He planned to propose amendments to antitrust laws to revise the tariff. And one of the things that he supported was a graduated inheritance tax. He supported strengthening our military and improving the security of forts throughout the country. And he gives some hints about what his foreign policy position will be. You know, he says things like peace is always the goal, but we must be ready if need be to protect our interests. He talks about the importance of the Panama Canal and how once it's finished, it will be of great benefit not only to the United States, but to the world. He specifically discusses the southern states and his desire to break down sectionalism. And if you take a look at this quote from his address, he says increased feeling on the part of the people in the south that this government is their government. Look at how many years after the Civil War we are, and we're still discussing the notion that there is this feeling within the southern states that they are not fully represented by the federal government. Hey, do you want to do you want to maybe explain exactly what sectionalism is? Sure. So we've discussed this in a number of different podcasts, especially on, you know, leading up to the Civil War and the Civil War. So sectionalism is, you know, having a greater sense of pride or concern about your section or your area of the country as opposed to the nation as a whole. So when we talk about sectionalism, it's you know predominantly three parts, northern states, western states, southern states. And within those sectional feelings, those sections of the countries tended to only 
support things that would directly benefit them, not seeing the grander picture of how, you know, another section like building railroads throughout the country could help the entire nation. They saw that as something that could just help the North. However, you know, Southern states, they lacked so many railroad lines or they lacked, they had fewer railroad lines than the North had that it was one of their disadvantages during the Civil War. Um, so when you think about sectionalism, that tends to be what people think about. When Thank you very much. You're welcome. So I also want to read another quote, and it's, it was a pretty big deal when he said it. He says, the consideration of this question cannot, however, be complete and full without reference to the Negro race, its progress and its present condition. The 13th Amendment secured them freedom. The 14th Amendment due process of law, protection of property, and the pursuit of happiness. And the 15th Amendment attempted to secure the Negro against any deprivation of the privilege to vote because he was a Negro. Notice he doesn't say that the 13th and the 14th Amendment attempted to secure those things, but he does use that word about the 15th because, again, and we discussed this when we did the 15th Amendment, the 15th Amendment did not guarantee somebody the right to vote. It just said that the right to vote could not be denied or abridged on the basis of race or previous condition of servitude. And I want to go back to his quote. He says, the 13th and 14th Amendments have been generally enforced and have secured the objects for which they are intended, while the 15th Amendment has not been generally observed in the past. It ought to be observed. And the tendency of Southern legislation today is toward the enactment of electoral qualifications, which shall square with that amendment. Of course, the mere adoption of a constitutional law is only one step in the right direction. It must be fairly and justly enforced as well. In time, both will come. So he's he's saying that he's recognizing that there is this issue, but there's no, he's saying we ought to follow it, but there's not this big push of I'm going to make you, right? And he goes on to say the progress which the Negro has made in the last 50 years from slavery, when its statistics are reviewed, is marvelous. And it furnishes every reason to hope that in the next 25 years, a still greater improvement in his condition as a productive member of society on the farm and in the shop and in other occupations may come. And he also recognizes in his speech that black Americans were taken to the United States against their will. And I think these quotations are incredibly important in understanding his perspective on civil rights and how the government must protect people's rights and enforce the law. When it came to being president, this was not a role he was happy in. He gained a lot of weight while president. He was known for falling asleep during meetings. It's believed that he had sleep apnea and he would often, you know, jolt awake after a few minutes. And while he didn't thrive in his role as president, his wife, Nellie, loved being first lady. She was a woman who dreamed of marrying a man who would become president of the United States so that she could live in the White House. 
since the age of 16, you know, that's a long time to have that dream. And she did a lot to expand the role of first lady. She spoke a number of languages and would often speak to diplomats. She is known for helping to beautify the capital by planting thousands of Japanese cherry blossoms. She worked to promote better working conditions for workers and met with unions. She attended, she even attended, you know, some cabinet meetings. She opposed prohibition. She supported suffrage and she smoked cigarettes. So good for Nellie. That's my kind of girl. (laughs) Not common for the time. You know, she was very, you know, outspoken and just a really interesting, interesting character. And had it not been for the two strokes that she suffered during her husband's term, she probably would have done much more. After her first stroke, which was a major stroke, she had to learn how to speak again. And President Taft um, worked with her for a year to help her regain her speech. During his presidency, the size of the White House was enlarged. Congress approved $40,000 to double the size of the executive office building, which would eventually become known as the West Wing. One of the new changes was the president's office, an oval office designed after the famous blue room in the White House, which is also oval. But this is not the oval office of today. That one was built during the presidency of FDR. Did you know that they chose an oval office because this way no one would feel like they could be backed into a corner? I didn't know that. Is that true? How do you know this? Did they tell you this on the on, on your tour? I drink a lot and I know things like, um, like what's like his Tyrion name? Tyrion Lannister. Like Tyrion Lannister. Okay. I like it. Mm-hmm. I like it. You know what? Actually, don't quote me on that as I picked that up somewhere. But worst case, it is someone's romantic spin on why the office is oval. That said, let's pause here and pick up on some of Taft's policies in part two of Taft. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.